Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today, we're continuing Dr. Newfeld's series, Celebrating Our Freedom in Christ. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, This is My Body, This is My Blood. One writer has said that the passage we're about to read is like a precious diamond dropped on a muddy road. Let me explain that. You know, up till now, we've seen that the Corinthian church is aptly described as a muddy road. I mean, there were divisions in the church in Corinth, both divisions around leadership and divisions between the rich and the poor. And some of the people in that church were more fascinated with Greek philosophical speculation than with the truth of Christ. And some were sexually immoral. And some believers, because of their greed, were suing other believers and had disgraced the message of Christ before their watching city. And some, through their cavalier attitudes about Christian freedom, were hindering weaker believers in the progress of their faith. And the love feast of the church had degenerated into drunkenness. The corporate life of the church in Corinth was indeed a muddy road. And in the middle of this, Paul drops a diamond. There's an invitation. Christ has invited this muddy, dirty, bruised, ragged, fractious, misguided people to come to his table of peace, love, and reconciliation. Isn't that how it is with us? You know, whether you attend a church which celebrates communion only occasionally, or whether you attend a church that never enters into worship without the Lord's table in any case, this passage of Scripture is for all of us. Now, how often have you felt muddy and dirty and sin-soaked and unacceptable to be either at a church or invited to the Lord's table, but then isn't that what the Lord's table was actually intended for? It's God's diamond, his rich grace dropped right into our lives. It's an ancient tradition that began 2,000 years ago that finally brings peace and love where it's needed most into messy lives. You with God's people for 2,000 years are invited to the same table, the table of our Lord. I'm reading one of the truly beautiful passages from the Bible, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, today I want us to see how the Lord's table, when, when rightly understood, brings unity, sets our hearts on fire, and opens our eyes to see what Christian faith truly means. I want to explain that. From this passage, I want us to see how the Lord's table first invites us to look back and then to look forward. Let's start with looking back. We need to remember that when Paul wrote these words, the year was AD 54, that none of the four gospel accounts, that is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of those had yet been written. Jesus had been crucified some 20 years ago, and Mark would write down the first orderly account of the life of Jesus five years after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Matthew and Luke would write about 15 years after this letter. See, what that means is that at the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, that is in AD 54, the only place you would hear about the crucifixion of Jesus and all of its implications was when you celebrated the Lord's table. So Paul records the first written account 
of the night when Jesus was betrayed. And that's why he writes, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now, those words are in fact technical words. There was in the ancient world a threefold process of handing down knowledge and ensuring that that knowledge would remain accurate. You know, first of all, a truth or an event or a teaching would be established because it had come from a trustworthy source or a trustworthy teacher. And secondly, the teacher chose recognized students who would be entrusted and who would become authorities in their own right, having both memorized his teaching and having been trained in what the teaching actually meant. And then thirdly, the last phase in handing down accurate knowledge meant passing on the teaching, listen to this, through an established tradition so that the truth content and the tradition in which it was handed down would never be changed. And that, says Paul, is what Jesus did. He was the established teacher. He chose his disciples who memorized and understood his words, and then Christ established the Lord's table, the tradition he instituted as the vehicle to ensure that there would be an accurate tradition of what his death meant. I know someone's going to say, well, why didn't the apostles just write down everything Jesus said right away? I mean, why do we have this 25 years until the first account of Jesus comes out? And then how do we know that it's accurate? Well, let me answer that. For one, those who understand ancient cultures will tell you they are overwhelmed with how accurate oral tradition, when properly undertaken, can be. In other words, this method described here worked perfectly. You know, I have a friend who was a missionary to a tribal people group in Brazil, and he would tell me that he would visit a tribe and he'd preach the gospel there, and then he'd come back sometimes up to five years later, and he'd find out that the key leaders had accurately memorized exactly what he had taught there when he was first there. Now, most of us today can't do that because I think television and the media have turned our brains into liquid soup so that we can't remember almost anything. But a great many cultures properly handed down oral traditions and are dead on in their accuracy. So there was no need, at least initially, to write a book. And indeed, the eyewitnesses were still among them, should you ever question the accuracy of it. And secondly, it seemed that the teaching of Jesus probably was written down in note form, but not put into an orderly format for about 25 years because the disciples believed that Jesus might come back very soon. I mean, they had no idea that his coming would be delayed. So as time passed, they came to realize that they needed orderly written documents, documents that would outlive the living apostles that Christ had chosen. So please understand, the Lord's table was from the outset meant to be an accurate instruction to help God's people remember what happened in real history. Of course, that's not the only meaning of the Lord's table. We've already noticed back in chapter 10, verse 16, these words, and their words were, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And so the table is more than a memorial, in some fashion, it does call God's people into a fellowship or a sharing of his suffering. Now, I did discuss that matter when we studied that passage, so I'm not going to repeat that here. But in this passage, we can see that one of the meanings inherent in the Lord's table is that it is given to us as a teaching aid. We're given not only the words that describe what the cross means, we are given a picture in a tradition of the table. Indeed, I would think that the practice of communion ought always to be attended with an explanation of the meaning of the events of the death of Christ that his death is an atonement for our sins. In fact, 
to reinforce this, Paul twice repeats what Jesus said. In verse 24, this is my body, which is for you. And then in verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So from our vantage point, we might think that it only means accurately remembering what happened, but in the Greek, it meant more than that. It meant to try to put oneself into the drama, to personally relive it. The agony, the suffering, the betrayal, the mock trial, the passion and the death. You know, there's an old Negro spiritual that some of you remember. Were you there when they crucified my Lord, sang the old black slaves? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. You know, but some of us might say, well, no, I wasn't there. But listen, in the fellowship of the Lord's table, you've been invited to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. In other words, this is the purpose of the Lord's table, to look back and when we do so, to imagine. Imagine what every point must have felt like and looked like and smelt like and what the emotions must have been like, the hatred, the sorrow, cruelty, the compassion. Put yourself there as, as if you were there. And when you eat of the bread, know that these kernels of wheat were crushed to provide you with this food and Jesus' physical body was also crushed to provide you with heavenly food. And that means there is a profound mystery in the Lord's table. See, I find the mystery being this, that in some way, I feel having been to the Lord's table, I am in fact an eyewitness of Christ's sufferings. I don't think I can explain that, but that in some mysterious way, I have experienced in the table the sufferings of Christ. There is, as it were, a sacred and sanctified imagination, which I am brought to union with Christ in the table. Imagine. But there is more to do at the Lord's table than to imagine. We are to remember, we are to imagine, we are also to recall all that Christ has done for us, and we are to rejoice and worship at that table. All of those things culminate together as we repeat over and over again for the length of our lives what Christ has done for us. A donor recently wrote, I decided to give because your ministry is one that can be trusted when it comes to teaching the Bible. It's really that simple. Well, this past month as a ministry, we placed an emphasis upon the critical importance of identifying Bible teaching you can trust. Well, this month, our hope is to reinforce the importance of not only identifying trustworthy teaching, but the importance of sharing those life-changing truths with others. This month, we've placed an emphasis on the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 11 for the purpose of restating our commitment to faithfully obeying the biblical charge to serve with all of our hearts and to teach the Bible with fervor. Our prayer is that you will join us in this effort. Your gifts, your prayers are critical in this day and for this purpose. To offer a gift today or to find out about our new initiative, the 1119 Fellowship, visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. I've said that one of the things that our Lord's table does is causes us to imagine. But I might add that it also causes us to recall what we already know. Now that's to say that one of the reasons for the Lord's table is to make sure that we remember the details accurately. It was the night when Jesus was betrayed. It was a night of intrigue and greed and satanic perversion, and yet a night of tenderness and mercy. There's never been a night like this. It was Passover, the night the Jews remember. 
You know, Passover remembers how Israel was delivered from the cruel slavery in the land of Egypt. It's the Jewish story of salvation. On that night of remembering, Jesus took bread. It was the Jewish Passover bread, the bread of haste, the bread baked without leaven, done that way because God had commanded them to do it that way. See, it was that way so that the Jews would remember there was not enough time for the bread to rise, no time for yeast. Simply eat quickly for the journey. God would deliver. He would save so quickly the bread wouldn't even have enough time to rise. And Jesus held up this bread when he gave thanks to God. The word thanks comes from the Greek word, and the word is eucharisto, from which many Christians now call the Lord's table the Eucharist. In other words, this table is the reason to give thanks. Her salvation also came suddenly. And after he had given thanks, he broke the bread of haste and he said, this is my body. That meant that the bread of haste was both the symbol that the Jews had in Passover, and yet it's also a new symbol in his time. This bread is a symbol of God's sudden deliverance from slavery. But this bread, the bread that Jesus held up, symbolized deliverance from the slavery to sin achieved through his body. And he also took the cup, which in fact, during the celebration of the Jewish Passover, you may not know this, but there were actually four cups, which symbolized four distinct promises that God had made. Cup number one simply said, I will take you out of Egypt. Then they would drink cup number two, and they would say, I would deliver you from slavery. And then came cup number three, and they said, I will redeem you with a demonstration of my power. And at that moment, with cup number three, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the demonstration of my power to save. Now, the cup of wine symbolized blood. At the original Passover, blood was smeared on the door frames of the houses so that the angel of death would see it and pass over those houses and save those who were covered by the sacrificial blood. But blood was also consistently applied to all of Jewish worship. In fact, Hebrews 9 verses 19 to 22 says it, I think, very well. It says, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. See, forgiveness doesn't come through good intentions, or nice feelings, and well-wishing, or thinking positive thoughts, or, or even by being remorseful, or even pledging that we're going to try better next time. Forgiveness comes with shed blood. Sacrifice is required. It is demanded. Forgiveness is not cheap, but it's expensive. And so, to symbolize the price of forgiveness, the Old Testament priests sacrificed bulls and cows and lambs to symbolize the cost of forgiveness. See, but what kind of forgiveness did all that blood in the Old Testament actually bring? Well, it forgave the worshiper of ritual uncleanness, but for all that terrible stuff like breaking the Ten Commandments and like murder, like lying and stealing, adultery, like envy, like failure to honor father and mother, like misusing the name of God, like false worship, you know, for all those things, no animal blood could forgive. All that was left was condemnation and judgment and death and, and wrath eternal stuff. So listen again to the words of Hebrews 10 verses 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And that's it. His blood is perfect. His perfect blood poured out, splashed, and running on a cruel cross. This blood makes perfect. It forgives. It saves. It makes clean. It washes off that muddy road forever for those who hope in him. Here is forgiveness. Here is salvation. And Paul says, this is what we should imagine and recall and relive. Jesus said, this is the new covenant. This is a binding agreement that God makes with anyone who puts their faith in him. That Christ's cross, his his terrible sacrifice, his spent blood forgives you. See, without this, there is no forgiveness. With this, you have God's word that your salvation is complete. And so, therefore, we, we look back to imagine, to recall, but we also look back to rejoice. See, I use the word rejoice because this is the agreement or covenant that God has made with us. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so when we come to the table, we not only come with a sober reminder, we come in joy and gladness with hearts lifted up to God for the new covenant with God is sealed by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus for all time. And so the Lord's table calls upon God's people to look back and remember We are to do this in remembrance of him. See, in a sense, the Lord's table assures us that worship will never degenerate into what we should be doing or into moralizing or even just thinking about how perfect are the attributes of God. I mean, worship will always, always, always center around the cross of Christ where he died in our place. But look again at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see that the Lord's table not only invites us to look back, but also invites us to anticipate what lies ahead. I want you to notice two things in this verse, and here's the first. We are to repeat the Lord's table over and over again, as often as you eat. It's a very simple phrase, as often as you do it. He doesn't say how often. That's been left to us. It might be every day, several times a year, but we are to keep repeating it. Now we see how different the Lord's table is from our baptism. See, baptism is practiced but once in our lifetime, for it symbolizes that Christ's death, that his salvation was done but once, and once is enough. So then why should we continue to repeat the Lord's table? And the answer is that we are to do so until he returns or until his second coming. There's some very fascinating connections between the Lord's table and the wedding supper of the Lamb. We are invited to this table to keep repeating it, well, how long? Until he comes, and in it, we anticipate the table to come. Do you remember that I said that there were four cups at the Passover, and and Jesus pronounced the words of blessing on the third cup? See, what about the fourth cup? Well, Jesus never drank the fourth cup, which dealt specifically with making Israel a nation and also looks forward to the defeat of all of Israel's enemies. The fourth cup will be drunk at the wedding supper of the Lamb when all our enemies have been defeated. And five years after this document of 1 Corinthians was written, Mark would record more fully what Jesus said. And I'm I'm reading now from Mark 14, 24 to 25. And he said to them, 
This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So in other words, Jesus delayed the drinking of the fourth cup to the time when we would drink it with him in glory. See, in other words, this Passover meal has yet to be finished. It is to be continued when the first table has been shared by all of Christ's people from his first coming to his second coming. And then when the last of God's elect have been called in, and when Jesus reappears in glory, it is as if the Lord's table, the one that was never finished, resumes. And then all those who have already started at the table are bidden to come and sit with him again and complete the meal that we have just begun. Now, you know, I'll never go to the Lord's table without thinking about the fact that there is one more cup to drink in the age to come. I silently thank my Lord and Savior that I am called upon to tie two pieces together, the beginning and the end of my salvation from the cross to the skies. What a blessing it is then to be invited to the table of our Lord. Next time you go, thank God for all that has been put into those elements. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have left us with a table, a table of communion. Communion both with one another, but communion with you who gave your life for us. Thank you for its richness. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for in it, we not only remember what had happened, but we also anticipate what is to come. Thank you, O Lord, for this grace. In Jesus' name, amen. John, loved your message today. Here's the question that I have for you, though. You know, this is an incredible thing because communion is to bring the fellowship of believers together, but over the centuries, it's really caused quite a bit of divisiveness, even between like church fathers and great theologians. Historically, what am I to bring of that? Yeah, I think one of the, the examples that to me is a tragic one is the breach between Martin Luther and Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland. I mean, two reformers that were trying to share the gospel and finally Luther coming to the place he would have nothing to do with Zwingli because they disagreed on the exact meaning of the Lord's table. And I find all of this so tragic and we have divided the church over this. So from my vantage point, I think it's okay to say that perhaps in the Lord's table there is as of yet that is, to our understanding, an unexplained mystery here. I mean, how do we understand this? I mean, yes, it is a memorial meal. It does symbolize something. I think we all agree with that. But perhaps there is something deeper in a mysterious meaning that we will never be able to put in words. And would it be okay for us to just admit that and then fellowship with one another? A great question. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. This month, we celebrate the commitment of our monthly partners with the launching of a new monthly partner initiative, the 1119 Fellowship. Based in Deuteronomy, the 1119 Fellowship is critical to our continued efforts to share the gospel with a new generation and to help teach in a way that can be trusted and that will build a firm foundation for a life in Christ. As of this past July, we celebrate 674 monthly partners, all committed to sustaining and growing the mission of Bible teaching you can trust. In the months ahead, 
We're asking you to join our monthly partner, 1119 Fellowship, as we march toward 1,000 participants. Join us this month. Become a part of the 1119 Fellowship. And for more information or to sign up today, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Together, let us ensure that the Word of God is being declared to a new generation.